Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I am pumped today. This is a special, special podcast. This is the last interview with a singular guest that I'm going to have in 2015. And I planned it this way because the episodes after that will be the normal best of part one and best of part two of 2015 but my guest today jimmy tingle flew all the way in from boston to come here to be on this podcast which shows a level of insanity (laughs) that happens in the comedy business no i'm kidding i'm honored that he came out here to do that i have so many things to tell you about jimmy tingle because you probably don't know that much about jimmy tingle but after this podcast you will know a lot about perseverance hard work dedication changing the patterns in your life listen to this man he speaks the truth and coming full circle to be where he is today before i do that i just want to say as i always do thank you so much for everything this year and beyond and before and everything you guys are amazing so supportive the reviews that you leave on the itunes comment review section unbelievable the letters and texts and fedexes you can't even you just can't even believe it it's just so great and i'm so grateful i'm also grateful for all of you that go to the website 
and buy your stuff through Amazon on the banner. It doesn't cost you anything, and Amazon is gracious enough to dedicate a few shekels to the Jewish Boy College Fund, which is very, very nice. But as you know, as I sit here across from Jimmy Tingle, I normally look into a guest's eyes and I think to myself, what am I going to talk about? What am I going to say? Because I never have any idea what I'm going to say. And for some reason, 120 times, it seems to have worked out, although some people would disagree. So as I look at Jimmy Tingle, I think back to a moment in time, probably 35 years ago, and it's just shocking to me because when I look in the mirror, I don't feel like I could possibly ever say it was 35 years ago, and it almost stings in a way because you realize that so much time has passed and there's a part of your life that's gone and you have new chapters that you have to look at. But as I do look back to this moment in time 35 years ago, it really seems like yesterday, and I'll set it up for you if you don't mind. I used to do comedy in Boston, if you could call it that, at the open mic nights in the Boston area. And one of the first times I went on stage in Boston. It was a shocking time for me that didn't involve Jimmy Tingle. I was just about to go on, and a young man tapped me on the shoulder. But as I was just about to go on and I turned around, there's a young baby-faced kid wearing a hunter's hat with the red and black pattern a hunter's jacket with the red and black pattern, hunter's pants, and Elmer Fudd boots. <laughs> and he shakes my hand and he said, hey man, I just wanna wish you good luck. Um, I'm going on after you. And as he said that, I'm thinking to myself, oh my <laughs> God. I know I don't have a lot of confidence in myself as a comic, but I'm gonna blow this motherfucker <laughs> off the stage. I feel so horrible. I said, oh, thank you so much. That's so nice. My name is Barry. What's your name? And he said, uh, it's my first time here. My name's Bobcat. And that was Bobcat Goldthwaite. So I go on. I do my set. I kill. I have a great set. It's unbelievable. I wish him good luck as I sit at the bar. And I'm thinking to myself, take that motherfucker. <laughs> Bob goes on and he transforms into a character that I'd never seen before or no one had ever seen before. It was incredible. If you look historically at comedy, it was probably part Andy Kaufman, part Sam Kinison, part Lenny Bruce. It just political, unique, but also mainstream, but dark. And he grabbed his pants as tight as he could by the thigh, like he was grabbing it and shaking himself. And he just got up to the microphone and he just said, uh, um, my, uh, my brother taught me the, the Bigfoot mating call. You want to hear it? 
And the crowd's like stunned. They're like, yeah. Okay. Hey, Bigfoot. <laughs> Want to get lucky? <laughs> okay, that was bad. Uh, and then he proceeded to go on with this line. I'll never forget this as long as I live. Um, I lost my job. Um, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't really lose my job. It's <laughs> just when I go there, there's this new guy doing it. And he goes on this whole set. He is killing like no comic I've ever seen kill in my life. I mean, people are like bobbing up and down in the crowd. It's like a Def Jam show with white people. <laughs> he finishes off his set. I'll never forget this. Um, I lost my girlfriend. Um, I didn't really lose my girlfriend. I'm, just when I go there, there's this new guy doing it. Um, I'm looking for roommates. Thank you. Good night. Gets off like standing ovation. <laughs> I'm thinking to myself at the bar, I want to quit comedy right now. I mean, there's no way that I could ever be as original and unique as that. And somehow I fought through the pain of it. But the point that I wanted to make here is that I went to the Comedy Connection in Boston and I wanted to start doing comedy. And I saw one of the most original, unique people in comedy and I thought to myself well this must be an anomaly I can fight through this I can be original but let me go back there again next week and I go back there the next week and I'm just about to go on <laughs> I decide to walk into the bathroom and just get myself ready check myself one more time there is a blonde <laughs> pink Irish man with a beard and a trench coat that appears like there's nothing underneath it with a harmonica playing harmonica in the bathroom singing the blues news. This guy is either homeless or he is a genius. Before I go on, I say, hi, my name's Barry. He says, hello, young Barry. I'm young Jimmy Tingle. I'm like, good luck, man. <laughs> I go on to do my set. I do a great job again. I go to the bar. Jimmy Tingle is introduced. <laughs> doing the blues news. A political version of the news set to the blues and harmonica. He's killing like Bobcat Goldthwaite. <laughs> destroying the place every nuance it's a combination of if jack benny were political and were young and blue collar and influential and jimmy finishes off a set and killing part of the crowd standing again you know it's like what the this is unbelievable and it made me realize that boston at that time every time i went back there <laughs> Stephen Wright would be on. Lenny Clark, Paula Poundstone, Jonathan Katz, who created Dr. Katz, Barry Crimmins, who was an incredible political performer and had an anger about him and a bitterness. And I strongly suggest you go see or download the film that Bobcat Goldflate directed on him. But it was just 
a unique and unbelievable time. Even the people who work there who weren't necessarily the most respected, these people were still doing material and jokes and concepts that you couldn't find anywhere in the country. And as I got to know Jimmy Tingle, I found out a lot of things about him. I found out that some of the ways that he made money when he was in Cambridge, Massachusetts, was stealing bicycles in Harvard Square. So what I wanted to tell you is as Jimmy Tingle evolved in the Boston comedy scene, he understood what it took to get to the next level. And although he was from an area of the country that was probably more blue collar than white collar in the way his neighborhood was, he was a guy who just was so brilliant and unique. But when you talk to him, and I don't mean to say this is insulting, you didn't get through talking to Jimmy Tingle and think that this guy was a Rhodes Scholar. <laughs> but when you saw him on stage, his comedy evolved from the blues news to social commentary that was so unique and special and unbelievable that everybody who saw him had the greatest amount of respect for him. And he was one of the few guys that no one ever said a bad word about. No one ever disliked him. He never raised his voice. He never was in a situation where he treated anybody unkindly. And what I want to say is that it's incredible the way Jimmy Tingle started in his life in the shadows of Harvard University doing these things that were illegal. And one of the greatest things and greatest stories that you will ever know about Jimmy Tingle is he went through all of that, wrote great material, came up as a comedian, started making money as a comedian, decided to plant his flag in Boston and not leave and not go out and become a household name in Boston, which in turn helped him get so many national television credits and so many things that we're going to talk about but the biggest thing that it helped him do and the complete metamorphosis and turnaround was that in 2010 jimmy tingle delivered the commencement address after receiving his master's degree at harvard university here we go in three, two. There ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Here we go. You fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. All right. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard. With me, Barry Katz, and my guest, the young, pink one, Jimmy Tingle, young at heart. And I want to give him the proper introduction, which I hope you will enjoy and get a sense of him. Jimmy Tingle was born in Cambridge, Massachusetts, 
and has had a career spanning three decades as a comedian, writer, activist, executive producer, and entrepreneur. He rose up from the Boston comedy boom of the 80s, the scene that spawned Stephen Wright, Bob Cat, Goldthwaite, Paula Poundstone, and Dennis Leary, and the next generation of Dane Cook, Bill Burr, Greg Fitzsimmons, and Louis C.K. Ever since Johnny Carson first introduced Jimmy on The Tonight Show in 1988, he has remained a standout in stand-up, specializing in political humor and social commentary. For years, Boston comedy and theater fans have known what Jimmy Tingle does. He wrote and delivered short commentaries a little later on in his career for 60 Minutes 2 on CBS in the Andy Rooney spot. Tingle also has worked on multiple occasions as a contributor and satirist for MSNBC, CNN, Larry King Weekend, Late Night with Conan O'Brien, the American Comedy Awards, as well as his own HBO comedy special. He has also been a guest on NPR's Fresh Air with Terry Gross and appeared regularly on Heat with John Hockenberry. Tingle grew up working class, that perspective coupled to his Catholic background, particularly the social justice side of the faith continues to be a major influence on Tingle's life, politics, and worldview. Early on, Tingle's father owned and drove taxi cabs in his hometown. This kid's, Tingle says, the cab was their family car. I'm sure we'll hear a lot about that later. Tingle has executive produced multiple comedic and theatrical productions, including Jimmy Tingle's Uncommon Sense at the storied Hasty Pudding Theater at Harvard University, which became the longest-running one-person show in that theater's history. He also wrote, produced, and starred in his first documentary film, Jimmy Tingle's American Dream, which aired on over 60 PBS affiliates. Other film credits include roles in Larry David's Clear History, Chris Rock's Head of State, Next Stop Wonderland, and Boondock Saints. And he also played an important part in the international Emmy award-winning documentary on art censorship, Damned in the USA. His theatrical credits include writing and starring and executive producing four one-person shows directed by Larry Eric, Jimmy Tingle for President, Uncommon Sense, The Promised Land, and American Dream. Tingle has the rare distinction of winning Boston Magazine's Best of Boston Awards in two different categories. He won as a performer in the stand-up category, and then the venue he founded, Jimmy Tingle's Off-Broadway was named Best Alternative Theater. Tingle was artistic director, producer at the Somerville Mass Theater all the way through 2007. His newest stand-up comedy CD, Making Common Sense, was recorded as a one-hour radio special. And Tingle's newest venture is the social enterprise entitled Humor for Humanity, which he hopes to expand his footprint and their mission is to use comedy, commentary, and conversation through social media, radio, television, and live events to raise spirits, funds, and awareness for nonprofit charities and social causes. Our mission is their mission, as he says. Later on this year, Jimmy Tingle will be headlining a concert on New Year's Eve at the historic Wilbur Theater in Boston, where he plays every year and actually sold out the Sanders Theater in Harvard Square last year. So I want you all to welcome a man that always blows me away and is one of the most special people in comedy that many people don't know about, but hopefully after this podcast, they will. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Jimmy Tingle. 
Thank you, Brother Barry. Good to see you, man. Good to see you, man. Thanks so much for having me on. So awesome. I have so many things to talk to you about. Great. I remember the blues news. <laughs> I can't remember what exact bits I did, but I remember playing the harmonica, coming up there, and you know how Goldthwait had the character. You know, I was trying to be like a Bellucci type thing. It had the trench coat, the hat, the sunglasses, but I wrote my own songs, the Test 2 Baby Blues. I'm a Test 2 Baby, that's why I got the blues. Was a man-made mutation, scientifically abused. Was the miracle of the laboratory. How come I never made 60 Minutes or even the news? <laughs> Ironically, <laughs> this is what's so crazy about your career, Jimmy. Yeah. So again, I know you don't like to talk about it. Stealing bicycles, Harvard University. <laughs> Another thing that you did, you had the longest running show at Harvard University's Hasty Pudding Theater, then did the commencement address. Then in your first performance at the Comedy Connection that I saw, you did that blues news song oh, yeah. that talked about how you were going to be or wanted to be on 60 Minutes. And later in your career, you became the correspondent for 60 Minutes 2, taking over for Andy Rooney in the next incarnation of it. Yeah, it was pretty wild. Uh, you can't plan it. That's the great thing about comedy, Barry. You no, know, you know, when I saw you at the Comedy Connection, I saw Barry's set. I saw Barry's set. And I want to I wanna say something right now. I'm not getting off this podcast till I hear Popeye having an orgasm. Oh, that's... <laughs> That's right. One of one of my routines was characters having orgasm. How horrible is that? That's okay, man. We all start like that. <laughs> the thing is, I never got out of it. That's the sad part. Holy Can you shit. still do the Popeye having the orgasm? I don't know. I forgot about it. <laughs> I remember it. I, I can't do it either, but it was pretty funny. It's like... <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it feels so good. <laughs> I think that was it. What's that? <laughs> I think that was it. I think Holy that was shit, it. Holy shit, I'm going to shut down this podcast. No, but you know what? Those were beautiful times, man, open <laughs> mic nights. They were beautiful. Who did you see when you started that you were like holy shit i'm never gonna be able to be this good all of them because none of them were doing that so all of them were just up there talking lenny sweeney rodney dangerfield huge influence but then you decided to do regular material when did you decide to make that switch what happened um you know I did that character for about, I don't know, maybe six months, maybe a year. And at the time, Martin Olson was living at the barracks with Lenny Clark. The barracks was a, uh, a house in Cambridge that was under rent control that was had very low rents that Lenny had the lease to or the deed to. And Lenny had all these comics, whoever came from out of town and was looking for a place to stay, they would stay at the barracks. So Lenny had, Swe uh, not Sweeney, but Kevin Meany lived there. Uh, uh, Lenny's, I think one of his brothers lived there. A couple of his friends he went to high school lived there. Martin Olson was one of the guys who lived there. Barry Knight crew lived there. People who came through town would stay there. But the barracks was pretty wild. So uh, Martin Olson actually, I started to practice some jokes. I said, Martin, you know, I want to try to, because I'd do the song parodies, and they would get certain receptions at certain times, you know, late night, closing Lenny's, you know, open mic night, closing that, going up with the harmonica and that, that always did well. But then you, you know, so you kind of evolve. And so I would watch these guys. I'd watch Steve Wright. I'd watch them all. And I started to put together stories and material like that. So I'd run it by Martin Olson. And Martin Olson would crack up. And so we started writing them down. And then finally got up the nerve to try to perform without the harmonica, without the 
trench coat and uh, and then I never never used it again. But that's how I got into it, sort of as a character. Tell us about the first time you performed without the harmonica, and changed that pattern of your career. And who was on the show? Oh, it was uh, it was an open mic night. You know, it was Lenny's open mic night, or uh, and it was I was so nervous, man. I think in Goldthwait talks about this too. His character, he would say, if you asked him, he would say, you know, a lot of it was just his authentic anxiety. He was so nervous, you know, and he just took it to another level and made it hilarious. But a lot of it was just, I was just really nervous. I was not a good public speaker. I never liked speaking in class and in school or anything like that. I, uh, and if it wasn't for, you know, having a few beers, I probably never would have got on stage. Uh, so I was, I was just nervous, and I can remember pacing. And the thing about that time is you don't know what you're doing. Like, my the people, my role models were not industry people. I had heard Bill Cosby's albums. I had heard, you know, a little bit of George Collin. I had a, heard a little bit of Richard Pryor. But mostly the people I was influenced by was Lenny, Sweeney, Gavin, Steve Wright, Cremins, you know, the people who we were, because I was the daytime bartender at the Ding Ho, during that, the comedy club that Jim McCauley, uh, that Peter LaSalle came to in 82, uh, three, I think it was, and saw Stephen Wright when they had an audition there back in, you know, when the place first came and it was the back room of a Chinese restaurant is what it was, but it was a comedy club. But anyway, so my influence was those guys. So I was just so up there, just full of anxiety, trying to be funny. And I forget, I was doing stuff on the health food stores because they were just starting the health food stores and finding, you know, and, and that material actually developed into bits that I ended up doing on Star Search when I eventually did Star Search in the year that Meanie did it in Sinbad. And I think, uh, Oh, what's his name? Um, Evan Davis. That's who I lost to. Evan, Evan Davis. Davis from San Francisco. Yeah, yeah. Evan Davis and uh, Meany and who else was Sinbad was big uh, and he won a lot. Uh, a couple of other guys really did well on that show. But anyway, you know, health food stuff. You know, I go into a health food store, Barry, right? A man with the physique, Barry, of this wire comes up <laughs> to me to tell me that the vegetables look healthy. Yeah, the vegetables look fine. You are in some serious trouble. <laughs> Somebody turns on the fan, you're in orbit. <clears throat> and people, Barry, people are walking around with T-shirts to say, go hike the canyon. Why don't you go home and smoke in bed, would you please? <laughs> They're selling stuff, Barry, like seaweed. Seaweed? I go to the beach. I see seaweed in the water. I don't even go in. <laughs> now you want me to eat this stuff? I have a better idea. Why don't you come over my house? I'll let you mow my lawn. You can eat the piles. <laughs> Barry, natural, organic dog food for dogs. I bought some. I came home from work. The dog's sitting on the couch wearing a turban with beads going, oh, bow wow. <laughs> now the dog's into poetry. <laughs> so some of those bits I first started developing because I was living in Cambridge. It's like Berkeley, you know, it's like a very hip place, very progressive place. So the health food stores first started opening up in places like that. What I always found about you is you had more laughs per minute than anybody I knew. Back in the day, and then the nude beach, you know, doing oh. stuff about the nude beach. <laughs> I go to the nude beach, okay? First of all, we get there at noon. <laughs> Let me just say this. I gotta be high. I'm on my third six-pack, okay? Because I gotta be high to take my clothes off in public, okay? You know what I'm saying, Barry? I'm not a big guy. <laughs> Folks, I'm hung like a pigeon. That's just, so this is the type of stuff I'm doing back in 81, 82, 83. And then you're walking down the beach, I got the, and you come out of that cold ocean water. Oh, my Lord, I'm walking down the beach. I got the body of Moby Dick, the dick of Donald Duck. I'm carrying two six-packs. Folks, I look like Cupid doing a Budweiser commercial. I'm walking down the beach. 
you know, and the, and the lifeguards, you can always tell the lifeguards in the new beach, they got the bright orange balls, you know, and the blue letters right across them, lifeguard, and they got that white solar cane cream on their nose and on the head of the derby. Looks like they're wearing a little hockey helmet. Little kids are throwing stuff at it. So it was that type of material. But anyway, so that was the early days. And so it was stuff like that, working it out with Marty Olson actually off stage. And Marty Olson is a great He's producer the greatest. in television. He was and, so uh, great. He was so great. He had a great laugh. Out. And he gave you the confidence of one-on-one, just, you know, sitting there at the barracks. And he's, he's laughing his ass off at this stuff because I don't know if it's going to work. And, and unlike people like Leary and Leno and... Uh, Steve Wright and these guys who actually went to college, Emerson, to you know to really study performing arts. We didn't. I didn't have that background, so I was just making stuff up and going with it, you know, and trying to be original. Because the biggest challenge, one of the biggest challenges in the early day, is not to be like everybody else. But it was really hard because if your influences, your I was the daytime bartender, so every night I'm doing the bar, and these guys are on stage, and I'm not one of them. I'm an open micer, but it was hard not to be influenced by them. So one of the first times I got on stage at the Ding Ho, I'll never forget it. It was the night Bobby Gaylor, the comedian from Boston, Bobby. Gaylor was moving out to LA so they had a big party for him at the Ding Ho and everybody was up there doing five minutes so I was just starting my five minutes and so I'm up there and I'm doing stuff and Kremens and Kremens had quality control at the Ding Ho so if somebody did anything that was remotely similar to anybody else they he would get pissed off so I'm going I'm doing some joke he goes that's Lenny Clark right and he goes that's Gavin that's Sweeney do your own shit Tingle <laughs> yeah and this is like I'm, I'm like doing it I'm probably doing it like I don't know two three months without the trench coat and the hat but it was devastating because and and very helpful at the same time because he goes the next day goes you know you got to do your own stuff that's what differentiates people in this business you got to do your own stuff and you got to really go through your act with a fine tooth comb and make sure it's not derivative of anybody and as I say in his movie uh, I tell the story in his movie call me lucky which you guys should see the first time I heard the word derivative <laughs> but he was talking about you know not being like other people and at that time very few comics there wasn't a lot of overlap everybody in that scene was unique in their own their own type of uh, performance and own type of writer I remember Mike McDonald was a great comic in yeah. Boston guy just go on stage as an open micer hello everybody how you doing I get off stage and finish my five minute bit yeah. then I go to the bar and he'd sit next to me say hey pal I say hello. <laughs> yeah, some people took it to an extreme. I say hello. <laughs> Folks, hey, that's mine. Okay, Folks, that's mine. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it.
because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. So as I talked about in the cold open and I part in the introduction here, do you mind talking about your upbringing and the area you grew up in and how it was for you and your family growing up and the trials and tribulations? And then what was your first influence into wanting to be a stand-up comedian what happened sure well grew up in cambridge mass uh great place to grow up a lot of different influences in that city it's uh you know the home of harvard and mit so you got harvard at one side of the city mit at the other side of the city and the people the population for the most part when i was growing up in the 60s and 70s pretty working class city with harvard and mit middle class uh, we weren't rich we weren't poor but we were you know my father owned taxi cabs and uh, that was our family car when we were kids and uh you know he drove the cab and we went everywhere in the cab we never regular car we had a cab so we went everywhere in the cab he's from north carolina originally so every summer the whole family would get in this yellow taxi cab and go to north carolina to visit his relatives we wouldn't stop mark can we pull over no hold it i gotta go to the bath hold it we're only in new jersey hold it so we passed the milk carton around you know and everybody would go in the milk carton we were all under you know 10 years old i don't think grandma should have gone in but you know <laughs> and uh my mother would be riding shotgun she'd throw it out the window you know she'd hurl it pour it out the window and i'll never forget the time she poured it out the front window and the back window was rolled down it came in and soaked my brother gary hit him like square <laughs> and he's laughing and crying at the same time he's like <clears throat> and we're, we're all dying laughing but we all have like you know urine on us you know <laughs> can we pull over now dad gary is urine on him <laughs> yeah but it was fun in those days you know when i was young he had two cabs in cambridge so and we ran it out of our house so they they, they would do the shift change in the living room and you know so the morning the daytime drivers would come in and they would you know bring the money and you know and and every and the nighttime drivers would be waiting for them to come in and they, so we do the shift change right in the living room. And it was a different, it wasn't a very, uh, it wasn't an immigrant oriented business at that time. The drivers were mostly white, blue collar, uh, you know, cab drivers at that time. Was there one or two guys that you became great family friends because they drove from the moment he got the cab until he got out of the business? No. <laughs> no. But we had a couple of women drivers too. There was a couple of women drivers. You know, it was funny because years later, and we also had students, a lot of Harvard students and MIT students drove a cab part-time. And years later, uh, when I was actually at the Kennedy School. Kennedy School, Harvard University. Yeah, the Harvard. I'm in class, and the, this guy comes in as a guest speaker, and he says, he this guy's a big, huge real estate guy. He owned the Sears Tower at one point. He was one of the founders of, one of the first, um, uh, um, what do you say, uh, 
put in startup money for Zipcar, helped them get off the ground. He's a real entrepreneur, really bright guy. When he was a student, he said, you have the last name's Tingle. He said, does your father by any chance own cabs? Did he ever own cabs? I said, yeah. He goes, I used to drive a cab for your father. His name's Peter, uh, what the hell is his last name? I can't think of it, it'll come to me. But anyway, I told my mother about it. He goes, your mother had a set of lungs on her. She would, she, my mother's all Italian and I'm half Italian, English, Irish, Scottish, Swedish. My father said we're part Indian too, but I don't know if that's true. But anyway. Native American or the yeah, real Indian? Na- Native American. Uh, he says we're part of Rapaho. <laughs> I don't know if we are. But anyway. So your dad's driving the cab. So how do you go from that to being somebody who wanted to do comedy? Well, you know. I, ne- I don't think I ever would have gotten into comedy. I can remember one time, you know, we all watched, we, we had a pretty tight-knit family. We, we watched The Honeymooners, you know, Jackie Gleason, and we loved it the sh- with Art Carney, and that was just such great, great television back in the day. And uh, But I can remember how funny it was, how funny Jackie Gleason was. And when they did that world tour, they went to all these different countries. And my mother is all Italian, and my father is a, a white-angle Saxon Protestant from North Carolina. So so there was a lot of ethnic differences, but also there was a lot of love in the family, you know. And but there was also it was ward politics back in the day, you know, in the '60s and the '50s, the Irish and the Italian. There was a city of neighborhoods, you know, and it was so there was always it wasn't really conflict, but there was competition ethnically and in politics. And when they when Jackie Gleason and those guys went around the world and they went to Ireland and Italy and they did all the stereotypes and they did episodes from all these places, my mother and father would laugh so hard it was a very unifying thing it was very unifying and it's not ethnic humor i took my mother once to see catskills on broadway now catskills on broadway was a show that was really really popular about 25 years ago with all the borscht belt comedians who were not really well known people like freddie roman and malzy lawrence yeah malzy lawrence freddie roman um the other guy uh Italian guy, I, f- I forget his name. But anyway, Jewish guy, Italian guy, Irish guy, hilarious. And my mother loved it because she said, you know, when we were coming up, that's, we loved the ethnic humor, you know? And it wasn't, it's not very pop, I guess it's not as popular as it was back then, but you know, it's different now. But anyway, she loved that. So I can remember really enjoying that type of humor. And I said, you know, that'd be great, huh, Ma? To be a comedian, that would be a wonderful thing. She said, are you kidding me? Show business? There's drugs, there's alcoholism, there's divorce, there's there's godless people. The only thing worse than show business is politics. (laughs) (laughs) So I think psychologically, I said, I know, a political comic. That'll really get under her skin. (laughs) But anyway, uh, that's kind of, you know the the roots of of comedy were back then, but but that wasn't it really, Barry. What it was is Lenny Clark started an open mic night. Barry Crimmins came to Cambridge in like seventy nine, eighty, and it opened a club down the street at the Dingho. So I knew Lenny from high school, and at the time you could sign up. You know all you had to do was sign up, and. You know, I just got fell into it in college. We'd watch The Tonight Show, sitting around the dorm, Sad Night Live was very popular. Uh, watched uh, Freddie Prince on, on television, watched uh, Rickles, watched Carson all the time. The kids in the dorms that I, when, when I went to school at UMass Dartmouth, it's called now. now and, you said Lenny Clark was a friend. Now, for those of you who don't know, yeah, living yeah. under a cave, Lenny Clark. 
is a, a tremendous comedian. Started in Boston, was a star in Boston, and went on to do Lara Cat and his own show on CBS, and also Rescue Me, and just an amazing performer and actor. And so you went to the same... We went to the same high school, yeah. He was a year ahead of me, and he started doing it. He actually ran for city council, and uh, he ran for Cambridge City Council, too. So anyway, he was a year ahead of me. He was hosting these open mic nights. There was no comedy scene. There was no comedy scene, really. Uh, I mean, there was the improv in New York and the comedy store, I guess, in L.A., but there was no scene in Boston except the Comedy Connection was just starting it. This is 7980. Lenny was hosting the show, and I knew him. I said, can, you know, can I come down and maybe try to put together five minutes? He says, sure, come down and sign up. So I came down, signed up. I went to see Dangerfield in New York about every year for St. Patrick's Day, a crew from my neighborhood would go to New York, mostly Irish guys, and go to St. Patrick's Day Parade in, uh, in, in the city. And we, one of the things we did is go see Dangerfield. And Rodney had his own comedy yeah. club here called Dangerfield right. in New York City, right. there in New York City, and it was at 60th and 1st Avenue, and it's still there today, and it's an anomaly because it's a dark room. The waiters have red vests and black pants and white yeah. formal outfits. And at the time, he was doing the light beer commercials. And the only beer you could get at Dangerfields was Miller Light and Miller. <laughs> oh, really? That's it. That's funny. Well, we would go there, about 20 of us, 30 of us would all go down and would see the show. And his opening act, the really the way I thought I might have a chance to do it, because I didn't have any experience trying to be a performer. I was never in plays, none of that. So, but the opening act was this guy, Dennis Blair, and he's still around, and he played guitar, and he did song parodies. And I was, at the time, I was playing harmonica. I had taught myself to play harmonica. I was kind of into, you know, blues. I went to blues clubs just as a, a listener, you know, and but I liked music. I understood music, and I started to say, I can write some song parodies. I can do that. And so I came up with the Test 2 Baby Blues, and thank God I'm a city boy, thank God I'm a Burbite, and my favorite, the Poopa Scooper Blues, which was a protest song that I wrote to protest the newly enacted Poopa Scooper legislation, which I felt was greatly unfair. <laughs> and looking back on it, I was actually advocating for poop on the sidewalk, which... I'm embarrassed to say. But anyway, so that's how that's how I started doing that type so of stuff. So take us through your first time going on stage. What's your memory? Who was on the same show Lenny's with you? Lenny's host. Um, he gives you five minutes. I had been traveling. I went over to Sweden. I went over to Europe to visit a friend who I played basketball with at Cambridge Latin. Great player, Pat Ryan. He was over in Sweden, and he was playing basketball over there. And again, back at that time, Americans were just starting to go over. It's not like now where a lot of players play over there, but at the time, Pat Ryan was one of the first guys to go over there. I went over to visit him, and I was just starting to put together an open mic set. So I was doing street performing over there in, uh, in the Latin Quarter of Paris, put down the hat, you know, and just do my Test 2 Baby Blues and do all these songs. So I came back and uh, signed up for the open mic night with Lenny and went on. You're supposed to do five minutes. I had five songs, so I had like a 20-minute set. <laughs> anyway, 
about 50 friends showed up. And you know how that is when you bring a big crowd. They're gonna, and it's song, they clap at the end anyway, no matter who does it. Half of them clap and they like it. The other half are glad it's over. So it was one of those nights and a bunch of kids from the, from the neighborhood came and uh, Lenny was the host. They all knew Lenny and uh, he put me on and it was great, you know, and it went well. It went well. And, it was, and so I felt like, man, I can really do this. And of course it takes many, 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 many sets to get that level of, you know, feedback again. But the first one was a real breakthrough. Had that not gone well, I probably never would have done it again. All right, so then you start doing regular stand-up comedy, yeah. and then your comedy takes a turn where it becomes really, really political, really socially relevant, and really, really smart. So you go from the pooper scooper blues. Even the pooper scooper, Barry, had a point to it. <laughs> Even the pooper scooper blues, Barry, had an underlying social commentary. <laughs> well, let's just say you went from shit material to some yeah. of the most provocative and unbelievable material that I've ever heard and many others. So you make that change and then you realize you start getting some traction and people start taking notice. What's the first big break that happens to you where you're like, holy shit, yeah. I made the change. A lot of comedians, a lot of people in all different professions, they always stick to what they're doing. They're afraid to change because mm -hmm. you're getting applause with the harmonica. Oh, when you yeah. go into straight stand-up, you don't get applause right away. So you're going from heroin to aspirin <laughs> and it takes a lot of intestinal fortitude and guts to do that so you make that change you, you know change the pattern i quit drinking that's what happened i was you know you know i don't think that's true it's no 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 at that time because i'll tell you why and we're gonna go over this if you don't mind sure no no i don't mind i was running play it again sam's and yeah. one of the things we talk about that you don't like to talk about and i think this is a really important story i loved jimmy tingle's comedy and i wanted the greatest comics in there and i had bob goldthwaite hosting wednesdays i had leary hosting thursdays i had lenny hosting saturdays i had dana gould mm -hmm. on certain fridays i had dj hazard i had anthony clark and i wanted you to host certain shows and whenever i could i'd have you come in the host and there was one time where you were hosting and I was trying to run the show a certain way and you were going off the rails. And at the time, again, I didn't really understand what alcohol really did. I know you probably saying to yourself, well, Barry, you were in college. Didn't you understand? I just isolated myself. So when Jimmy Tingle was going off the deep end, I remember saying something and trying to rein him in on this particular show and there was a crowd there and things were going up. And Jimmy Tingle started taking ceramic plates and started throwing them from the stage out into the crowd and out in places and breaking and whatever. And Barry, I, I wouldn't say throwing. We played Frisbee is what we did. It was a Frisbee. <laughs> it was an exercise in Frisbee. And when he got off stage and I talked to him, it was an amazing moment because he wasn't angry. He was apologetic and he was emotional. And I think he was crying. And I understood at that point that he was powerless over alcohol. 
And so that's why I'm saying you didn't quit drinking in between the blues news and the thing. No, you right. were still doing stand up. And at that moment, the time, I remember having a conversation with you, even though I wasn't really a guy who understood alcoholism or understood the concept. But I remember, I guess I channeled some old soulness in me and we had a really heart to heart conversation, which was wonderful because I was still a young guy. That was a very important conversation, Barry. And it was I was completely out of control completely wrong in what I was doing but you know didn't care and that's the that's the devastating thing about alcohol you're not you're not doing things you would normally do and uh, and so the jails and the hospitals and the graveyards are full of people who ended up there because they were doing things they would not normally do had they not been uh, under the influence but that conversation Barry the thing that was great about that conversation is you were saying you know something you can be really good at comedy that's what you were saying you were saying you know you were pissed off that you know the host was acting up and out of control and that was but your real message that I got that night was you can be really good at this and you're fucking yourself up and um, and not even I don't think anybody myself included knew that you know what you even though you intellectually know that it's hard to get back on track. It's hard to stop doing I found it very difficult. So I went to, you know, that was like the beginning of kind of the end of that, you know, of, you know, just living that lifestyle. And it, But it's a very hard thing to break. Tell our audience your normal routine during the day and how you used alcohol throughout the day or whatever what was the normal routine did you wake up and have something or did you only wait till night like how did it work and the other thing is a lot of people think you know it's the business you know but and it you know i can just say for myself that i was alcoholic long before i ever got on stage in a comedy club it was just just there and a lot of it's uh was your dad an alcoholic um I wouldn't say, I, I can't say because it's sort of a self-diagnosed disease. Did your dad drink every day? Yeah, he drank a lot. Did your mom drink every day? No, but dad was a funny dude. He would sit there, he would drink his beers, you know, watch, he'd watch TV. And I can remember performing for him in the living room. And I'm doing the test two baby blues. I'm doing the pooper scooper blues. And he's sitting there, he's sucking on, he has a cigarette, Paul Mall. You know, he's got a Schlitz. Because, <laughs> Jimmy, I'm a man who loves to laugh. The Flintstones are funny. <laughs> Mikhail's Navy is funny. That's not funny. <laughs> That's ridiculous, son. You're trying to say too many things in one song. Because I'm on the I'm on the powerful parlor floor. I'm howling like a dog. Let my doggy do what he's got to do. <laughs> so it was off, you know, it was off the hook. It was, but... That was the beginning, Barry, of a conversation of trying to get better, of trying to quit drinking. And what I I tried to, and it was hard because it was so much in my blood and it was so much in the environment in Boston. And not to blame other people or or anything like that, but I'm just saying if you have the the genes, if if you're allergic to alcohol, it doesn't matter where you are or who you're with. If you put it in your system, you want more. And that's how my system was wired. And it was like that from a, a, a teenage. Yes. Before we spoke that day, it played against Sam's. Right. Had you ever made an attempt to quit? Did you realize there was a problem at any time, or was that the oh, first yeah. time that you no, realized no, no. with the plates? No, no, 
I had tried many times, many times, but there was, you know, it's very hard to do it on your own. That's why, you know, anyway, what I ended up doing is, is going into, and another guy helped me as well as, um, guy Colin Quinn. Colin Quinn, Colin of course. Quinn, man. He said, listen, you could, you could really do something with your career. He said, you could, what he actually said to me, he said, you could be a star, you know, if you quit drinking. And my, this light went off in my head. I said, a star. If I become a really big star, I can drink all I want. <laughs> <laughs> what a great incentive. But it was, it was just conversations like that because, you know, we're in a very competitive business and it's very, and there's no coaching. I mean, I didn't have a coach. I didn't come up through... Like I said, I didn't come up through learning how to do comedy. It was You did it and learned it in the club. So when people were really sincere to you, to me, it really affected me because, and, and the other thing is most of the people were getting high and drinking the same way I was. So none of them were going to say, you need to quit drinking, you know. But the people who had some distance from that were able to, you know, see that and could and to, would tell you as a friend, you can really... You can do something with your life and with your with your career. So tell our audience how you quit drinking. What was your process? Well, my process was, Colin, I got out of uh, detox in 87. I was in there at Christmas in 87 in, in Cambridge. And it was embarrassing being in these places, you know, going well, to these places. Don't you have places. to self-admit yourself? Yeah, there? yeah, yeah, yeah. But I wanted to quit. How long did you go in detox? I or? went to several that year because the last year of that of that in the mid 80s, three people died. And I started to go to funerals for people who died. And all people that I used with and knew and hung out with, not they weren't all close friends, but one guy got murdered, one guy hung himself, another guy OD'd. And these were all people that I used and... I don't consider the word used and alcohol to go together. I considered drugs to be used and alcohol to be consumed. Right. Are you saying that you use drugs and you drink? I'm saying it was all around. Yeah, it was all around. And they often went hand in hand. Not always, but my primary thing was alcohol. But anyway, the people that we hung around with, you know, and all of a sudden you're going to funerals and you're seeing their families and you're seeing their friends. And you can't deny that, okay, something is not right here when you start burying people. And is just devastating and then just yourself i can speak for myself felt internally i'm going downhill and i'm gonna you know everything looked gray not it didn't look optim you know there was no optimism about the future to me in that mindset it was just negative and dark and it, it really sucked and i remember doing the comedy shows and running the comedy shows and after that conversation with you, I started to notice things more. I'm sure this is something that happens to a lot of people when something happens, you notice things more. And the next thing I noticed, it was incredible, was a comedian who's now a great showrunner here named Bob Nickman. I noticed him do his first show on a Saturday night and he was killed, did a great job, and then went to the bar and ordered a few drinks. And the next show, he's slurring words, and it's not going well. And then two weeks later, I noticed DJ Hazard having this amazing first show. And then he's closing the show at the end after drinking 
all night long and he can't even say the words and then seeing him having a conversation with his girlfriend who's crying at the bar saying dj please please stop drinking and passing that and then i started realizing more and more how prevalent it was yeah that's true and uh so how did you well i just well well i got out of the hospital in 87 and uh and colin said and he was up in boston and you know Colin hadn't drank in four years, and he was one of the first people that I ever met of my age group and my peers that was sober, you know, and he was just, you know, and he said, uh, you know, your problem's alcohol, and if you could ever quit drinking, you could be you could be really good as a comic. And I, I honestly, authentically, that meant so much to actually get to kind of break out of, out of the routine of just, uh, you know, of just... You know, you come up through life and there's all kinds of people that have all kinds of potential and all, all sorts of areas, sports. And I, I know a lot of people who could have been really fulfilled their potential as hoop players and athletes and stuff and, and didn't. And a lot of it had to do with alcohol. And I just didn't want to be one of those people. And I felt there was like a way to, to just actually fulfill my potential and actually be a really good comic and successful as a comic because I love doing it and uh, it was a blast and uh, it was very fulfilling to make something up and get a reaction from an audience that of total strangers to create something completely unique that hadn't been said like that before ever and to get that reaction from people it was just an unbelievable connection and then to be able to articulate a point of view or to actually make a point and get laughs that was just the best so I, I mean I loved it but it was it was a spiral downward and you know, people like yourself and Colin saying you can get help. So I just, I moved to New York. I got out of Boston, moved to New York, and I just hung around with people who weren't drinking. I just went to Catch a Rising Star. I went to Stand Up New York. I went to, uh, you know, any, any of these rooms that I could perform in, the cellar, all those places, and just immersed myself in comedy and people that were getting healthy and trying to move forward in their lives. But it wasn't just willpower, Barry, you know, people, you know, and I can remember, uh, I can remember people saying, do you believe in, in God? And I said, I believe, and I was saying, you know, I was an altar boy, I'm Catholic. Yeah, I believe there's a God. Yeah. He said, you got to start asking God to help you stop drinking. And I'm like, ask God to help me stop drinking. Calm down. <laughs> What does God have to do with this? You know, but but this guy, when he said that, he said, and I'm just telling you, listen, is this, this is what happened to me. Take it for what it's worth. I'm not trying to preach to anybody, but this guy said, get in the, in the morning, get on your knees and ask God to keep you away from a drink or a drug. And at night, if you're successful, get on your knees and thank him for keeping you away from a drink or a drug. And that's what I started to do. And... I got out of Boston, went to New York. I did that exercise every day, and I've been doing it since, pretty much. And it's amazing how that paid off for you because your first big break in your career came about a year after you became sober and you started working really hard because when you go to New York, you know, in the 80s in Boston, it might have been a boom, but you go to New York and you can work like three four times a night it's unbelievable 
I always say to people, who's going to be the better comic? Comic A goes to Boston or L.A. and performs seven times a week, and comic B goes to New York and performs 21 times a week. Who's going to be three times better at the end of the year? Right. And your dedication and hanging out with the right people and not doing the wrong thing paid off because in 1988, that was your big break. Yeah, and the people there in New York were... They took it seriously. They just weren't from the neighborhood. Happened. Jerry Seinfeld just didn't live in the Upper East Side and happened to go to Catch Rising Star. People came there for a concerted effort to to make progress professionally as comics, and and they took it very seriously. There was much less drinking. There was much less partying, from what I can I recall. And um, yeah, and it was it was it was dynamite, and a lot of good things started happen. So just, take us through that first big break when yeah. the Tonight Show. Well, the came Tonight to Show. Well, there was a writers' strike, and I think it was '88. There was a writers' strike in out here in Hollywood, and uh, Jim McCauley was in in um, New York looking for people doing political humor at that time. But anyway, so I auditioned for him at Kent at for uh, Kerry Hoffman there at, at Stand Up New York. Who else was on the bill with you? Do you remember? I forget. I forget who was on, but I got to tell you, I was so nervous, you know, just even auditioning that, and I did political humor. I did basically political humor. The, we had made an album about a, uh, that year also Strange Bedfellows. Strange Bedfellows. That was with Will Durst, yourself, and who else was Barry on? Barry Crimmins and Randy Credico. That's right. Randy A&M Credico. Records. Yep. And he did, it was an election year. Dukakis was running against Bush, the first Bush uh, Bush senior that year. Anyway, so they, A&M Records did a political album, Strange Bedfellows. I just didn't even know I was doing political humor. I was just doing my thing. And they had auditions for it, and they liked the type of humor I was doing. So they said, you can want to be on this album? And I was kind of blown away. I said, sure. So now I'm a political comic. <laughs> anyway, so I just... Then Jim McCauley was in town and he wanted to see people doing political stuff and so I did a set for him and he liked it a lot and he wanted to put me on the show. And so we just started a process of, you know, coming out here, doing, trying to get six minutes together. You know, what's the right thing to open with? What's the right thing to close? I used to open with, I opened with like the strongest jokers I should close with. I was open with... You know, I was reading recently, folks, that uh, between Ronald Reagan and George Bush, between the both of them, they still can't remember whether or not they sold guns to Iran. Mr. President, with all due respect to the White House, in the future, if you sell guns to people that take Americans hostage, jot it down. <laughs> right? And so I would open with that joke, and it would get a big laugh in the clubs. But you can't open with that on The Tonight Show. <laughs> you got to say something about yourself. You can't, like, first thing out of your mouth, you can't go after two presidents. And I believe, <laughs> with you and Jim McCauley's help, that ended up being your closing joke of The Tonight Show set. That's right. That's right. It ended up as the closing joke. And yeah. we'll play you that set right now. Thank you. My, uh... We have a, tonight a young comedian from Boston making his very first appearance on network television. He's uh, a little bit unusual in the field of um, young comedians because he deals in uh, political humor and social commentary. And in fact, he has an album out of political humor. It's called Strange Bedfellows. Would you welcome Jimmy Tingle? Jimmy? <laughs> Thank you very much. Nice to be here tonight. You know, folks, I read the papers. I try to keep up with what's going on in the world. 
but sometimes I honestly don't know what to believe because I can't believe some of the things that have been printed about me. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not complaining about my reviews. I mean, I've had some very good reviews. I was compared to John Belushi in Variety Magazine. John Belushi. Cape Cod Times said, reminds one of Jackie Gleason. Jackie Gleason. <laughs> Boston Magazine recently wrote, looks like Barney Rubble. <laughs> Barney a Rubble? I don't know about you guys, but I'm wearing shoes. <laughs> I've had some funny reviews. Totally natural. Looks like a good-natured drunk at a party. Thank you. <laughs> a stocky character from Boston, Massachusetts, with beer, gut, and productive sweat glands. <laughs> the pink-faced Tingle worked hard, throwing his arms and shouting his punchlines. Crazy, intelligent, excellent humor. Now, I don't know about you people. But when I think of intelligence, a loud, sweaty man does not come to mind. <laughs> and the pink-faced tingle sounds like a bird that escaped from the zoo. <laughs> Children, get into the house. But mother, get into the house now. The pink-faced tingle's out there. <laughs> They'll bite you. You'll sweat and scream on television. They get in the house. <laughs> I was actually reviewed as being a smug comic once. Smug, which means you think you're better than other people. And obviously, folks, if they're comparing you to Barney Rubble, anybody's head would swell. <laughs> a smug comic whose act went over like the Hindenburg. The Hindenburg? Do you remember what the Hindenburg was, folks? A blimp that exploded. In 1937, 85 people died. Okay, maybe I'm not a comic genius, but an aerial disaster? <laughs> So I don't know if I can judge, you know, believe what I read in the New York Times about Gorbachev or Arafat. I don't know what to put on my own resume based on these reviews. I mean, what am I supposed to say? Yeah, I'm Jimmy Tingle. I'm an extremely funny, loud, crazy, sweaty, drunk pink man <laughs> who thinks he's better than other people just because I'm a cross between John Belushi, Jackie Gleason, and a prehistoric cartoon character. And I have that rare and unique ability to levitate off of a stage, <laughs> hover out over an audience, and explode. <laughs> I'll do it. I don't know. A few months ago, folks, the post office raised the price of a stamp from 22 to 25 cents. Not a big thing, really, when you consider what you get for 25 cents. But I'm watching the news, and they're interviewing this guy, and he's complaining. This is intolerable. Who do they think they are raising the price of a stamp to a quarter? And you watch the rest of the newscast, and it's like, in South Africa, women and children were bullwhipped into submission today. The Middle East, it's in its seventh month of turmoil. In Haiti, a man was killed on the way to the polls. And in the United States, the price of a stamp went up to a quarter. <laughs> Guys in Afghanistan, how do they live there? <laughs> People in El Salvador, is there no God? <laughs> When you think about it, for 25 cents, a man comes to a box in your neighborhood, picks up your message, and delivers it anywhere in the country for 25 cents. What's the problem? What, you want change? Tip the guy three cents. I mean, you can't pay an American kid for 25 cents to lick the stamp. I want a dental plan. <laughs>
I don't know, folks. The priorities, where do they lie? Congress recently voted against a proposal to have a seven-day waiting period to buy a gun. Now, folks, I don't want to sound like a Quaker, okay? <laughs> but, like, is a week a long time to wait to see if Hinckley is qualified to own a gun? <laughs> hey, I'm an American. I pay my taxes. I'm in an argument. I want a gun. I want it now. <laughs> well, we're sorry, sir, but you're going to have to wait at least a week for the gun. A week? The guy will be gone in a week. <laughs> Well, that's the point. <laughs> I mean, a seven-day waiting period to buy a gun in Congress is against it. Folks, it takes eight days to get a phone. <laughs> the war on drugs? Two years ago, the president said we're gonna have a war on drugs in this country. Then he cut funding for the Coast Guard. Why didn't somebody tell them? Mr. President. <laughs> That's how they get the drugs in. <laughs> On the boats. <laughs> well, we don't need the Coast Guard. We'll just say no. <laughs> Surely that'll work. <laughs> Is that General Noriega bringing 30 million tons of cocaine into the country? Nope. <laughs> well, well, we don't have the money to stop the drugs from coming in. Age research, we don't have the money. Illiteracy, the money. Education, the money. Poverty, the money. The homeless, the money. The elderly, the money. Star Wars. We got a few bucks. <laughs> we always have money for the Russians. These people should move here. <laughs> but if we don't take care of AIDS, illiteracy, education, poverty, the elderly, the homeless, things that actually matter in our own country, we don't need Star Wars because nobody is going to attack us. <laughs> well, think about it. Who's going to invade a leper colony full of homeless, old, illiterate poor people? <laughs> I was reading two weeks ago that between Ronald Reagan and George Bush, they still can't remember, between the both of them, whether or not they were involved in the arms sale to Iran. With all due respect to the presidency, Mr. Bush, there's a little tip. In the future, if you sell guns to people that take Americans hostage, jot it down! <laughs> What do you think when you hear that? Oh, it's great. Brings back a lot of memories, especially the stuff on the guns. This stuff is still in the news 30 years later or whatever it is, 25 years later, whatever it is. You know, they're still debating guns and background checks and, you know, and they're still mentally disturbed people getting weapons and shooting people. But, you know, this, it's not just one thing. It's background checks. It's, you know, accessibility to guns. It's mental illness. It's, you know, violence that, you know, the, the, the coarsening of the culture where people's lives don't matter as much, you know, 
it's just it's it's a lot of different things why is a kid bringing a gun to school to shoot up a school i mean that's is the motivation of people you know some people are motivated by crime some people are motivated by you know anger i mean terrorism obviously has a political element to it what's motivating people to want to shoot innocent people you know what's the what what's happened that led to this point you know the guy with the gun in the school or the guy it's like the last thing that happened so there's a chain of events that happen in people's lives that bring them to that point and that's what you know we got to get at and that's the hardest thing to do is to get at what this is because you know, people don't always aren't volunteering what their uh, their issues are, or their problems are, and it's, but there are signs when people have, you know, I mean, if you're on a no flies list, you know, you probably shouldn't get be able to get an automatic weapon. That's kind of a if you're in a terrorist watch list, you probably shouldn't qualify to get a, a, a weapon. That's kind of a normal thing, you know. I mean, some some companies, some private companies, have actually stepped up to the plate. Starbucks, Starbucks passed a, a rule in Starbucks after Newtown that said no more guns allowed in Starbucks. And I said, good, Barry. It's about time somebody in this country put their foot down and said it. No more guns allowed in Starbucks. And then it dawned on me, I had absolutely no idea you could bring a gun in Starbucks. I mean, did you know that? No. I mean, do we really want the people in Starbucks to be armed? Aren't they under enough pressure? They're in line. They're waiting for their medicine. They're going through withdrawal. Do we want them? Now, Barry, to us, it probably makes sense. No guns in Starbucks. Probably a normal thing, right? But there's people in this country who oppose the no gun in Starbucks law. <laughs> what do you mean, no guns in the Starbucks? What if I'm hunting a deer and it runs into the Starbucks? What am I supposed to do? Wait till he comes out with a cafe mocha grande latte? What's next? Background checks for me to get a cappuccino? <laughs> but I'll tell you something, Barry. I'll tell you something. It's interesting what people perceive. You know, the gun thing is part of the culture. So a lot of times it's not even interpreted as a safety issue. Like, for example, sharks. Two years ago, a guy got bitten by a great white shark on his foot in Truro, Massachusetts, in Cape Cod. Okay. The next, he didn't die, fortunately. He was bitten on his foot by a great shark. Now, that's a scary thing. The next year... At, in, in the Cape Cod beaches, there were big billboards in the parking lots on the beaches that said, warning, great white sharks live in these waters. Enjoy yourself. <laughs> enjoy myself. How am I going to enjoy myself worrying about a great white shark biting off my short white leg? Right? <laughs> but my point is this. There's been one shark fatality in North America in the last 10 years. One shark fatality. One, that's it? One. One. There are 100,000 people a year are shot with guns. We should have, we should have warning labels. We should have billboards at the airport when people from other countries come to this country as they're going through customs, warning them about us. Welcome to America. We're a great country. There are 350 million people in America. There are 300 million guns. Enjoy yourself. <laughs> so that's what I mean about priorities. You know, wouldn't it make sense to have something at schools where you have some kind of a radar system that can detect metal from a mile away coming into school? So it's like, okay, there's this gun coming. Uh, let's. Yeah, I mean something to 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 to. Uh, 
to put the emphasis where it should be. Like like this summer, again, back on the Cape, there was a shark sighting. So everybody had to get out of the water, right? My wife was at the beach. Everybody had to get out of the water. And people gladly got out of the water when they're saying, there's a shark sighting, get out of the water. So everybody's out of the water. But if somebody gets a gun in a neighborhood and the cops know someone has a gun, they don't clear the houses. Maybe they should start going through the, the neighborhood with megaphones. Come out of your houses. Put on your bathing suits and come out of the houses. <laughs> there's a gun. There's an unaccounted for gun in the vicinity of this house. <laughs> Thank you for going into that because I always wonder about that. Okay, so you have the big break, the Tonight Show. Yeah. What happens to you after that? You finally get your big break. What do you think to yourself is going to happen? Oh, it was great. Got an agent. Uh, got to go up to the Montreal Festival. Started working with Irvin Arthur. Michael. Irvin Arthur, yeah, the yeah. legendary yeah, agent. Yeah. Great agent, uh, got a nice, great manager, Joe Lauer. Joe Lauer, wonderful. Yep. Um, and uh, you know, work the clubs, work work the clubs. So you started working across the country. Yeah, working across the country, just like you know most of the comics. And did an HBO special with uh, one of those half hour specials. Yeah, of course, at the did, Vic Theater in yeah, the Chicago. Did, yeah, yeah, I did it with um, Alan Havy was one of the that that. That class, uh, Bill Hicks, Alan Havey. It was a great special. They were yeah. called One Night Stands. Yeah, One Night Stands. So big things start yeah. happening, and you work around the country, which is another pattern but that what? you changed because you said fuck it to the country, and you just planted your flag in Boston. You had the chance to see what it was like to work all around the country, and for some reason, I don't think it was for you. Well, you know what it was, Barry? As I got more sober and took life more seriously my act got way more political and i wanted to do things in the act that wasn't conducive that was it wasn't really conducive to the clubs you know people were in there drinking i'm doing stuff about quitting drinking I'm, I'm doing stuff about politics they're not always into it it's a date night you know it's a different mentality in the in the comedy clubs and so i wanted to do theaters and i saw jackie mason do his one-man show on Broadway called The World According to Me in 1989, and I walked out of that theater high because I, I got to tell you, do you know what it's like to be on stage when 25? I mean, I'm in the I'm in the balcony, I'm in the first row, I got the handrail in front of me. When 2,500 people laugh. You could feel the vibrations in the room. It was unbelievable. And what was also unbelievable at the time, Jackie Mason was well well along in age oh yeah 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 he had come out of well i don't know if he was ever in retirement but he had he had launched this show with the help of his manager jill rosenfeld i think her last name was jill rosenfeld i think anyway um yeah and he was in the catskills for years and he put himself in a theater with other people's help and you know and he did exactly what he wanted to do under his own terms on and and was tremendous at it. It was tremendous. And I I was in there, man, and I you could feel it was like an epiphany, you know? I, I that handrail was like vibrating. I had my hand on the rail and I got this sensation. I think it might have been divine intervention and I knew, Barry, what I wanted to be. A Jewish comic. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, it's uh it was awesome. So that was complete freedom. The that was a, like a goal. You don't have to 
you know, because it was difficult to get back on television. The Tonight Show didn't wasn't interested in having it back. You know, I wasn't. Johnny gave me the big okay. Macaulay said it was excellent. Start working on another one, but I never got asked back. And because they, they never wanted to put political comics back. Well, on. they for, for whatever reason. But it was not. But I know Johnny liked it. I know Macaulay liked it, and that's all I care about. And the audience liked it. But so, in order to work, if you can't work the clubs and you can't work TV. In the late 80s, where can you work doing political humor? You can work in theaters. So I just just put all my energy into doing one-person shows, and that's what I wanted to do. And so that's what I did. And uh, first one I did, I actually worked with Jack Rollins. Uh, he came out of retirement Jack, to work with me. Jack I was Rollins, so, legendary manager who managed, peace, uh, Jack, wonderful managed man. Woody Allen. Yeah, but he uh, helped me. You know, he... He knew what I wanted to do. He came out of retirement. Well, he was he was retired. I mean, I moved I moved back to Boston. I produced myself. I rented a theater up there, the Charles Playhouse. I rented the Hasty. Uh, I rented the Charles Playhouse. I started to do the show. I was in New York. I was back and forth, Boston and New York. Where did Jack see you? Jack saw me. Um, Kerry Hoffman from Stand Up New York said, "You know, if Jack Jack saw me, I think at Kerry's place." I think it was the first place he saw it, but he, you know, yeah, he had been retired, but he, he likes, you know, he likes to do things. He wanted to do things, and he, he, you know, he started working with me and helped me, and we did the uh, American Place Theater with Win Handman down there off of Times Square, and uh, that's where Eric Bogosian first did his Spalding Gray. I don't know if Spalding did it that place, but it was that genre: Spalding Gray, John Luisiamo, Eric Bogosian. Guy Rick Reynolds, I believe his name was Rick Reynolds, who did the, who's like the first comic to really do it that wasn't on the Jackie Mason level. Rick, yeah, I think it was Rick Reynolds. Anyway, he did a, a show out in San Francisco called um, Only the Truth is Funny. But it was very inspirational because you, you had all this freedom on stage. You could talk about serious things. You could talk about funny things. You could tell stories. You could go for five minutes without a laugh. But that doesn't mean it's not good. It just means it's affecting people in a different way. This was the concept of doing a stand-up show that was a theatrical piece, so a one-person show versus just a one-person concert. Right, right. The, but it could be it could be a one-person set, too. I mean, Jackie Mason's basically was a, a long set of all his greatest hits, and it was great. And it, it, it can be whatever you want. It's like a podcast. It can be whatever the hell you want it to be, you know? Uh, and so that's the great thing about it, the freedom. It's the great thing, the artistic freedom, the political freedom, freedom of a theater the audience pays a little more they're not there to get drunk they're there to listen um they're you know and they can be challenged in any sort of direction it's uh and they can be hugely uh, appreciative for for the humor parts of the show so that's the direction i went and i just kept doing that i just kept doing it i did it in boston you talk about how the hasty pudding theater happened and how your show the became the longest pudding. running yeah. show in that well, we did history. it off Broadway in New York. We did it with Jack Rollins, the New York Times. And the name of that show was? Uh, Jimmy Tingle's Uncommon Sense. And you, the New York Times, you were saying? A wonderful review. Uh, really nice review. And Jack said at the time, you know, you 
even though we didn't get what we wanted, you know, we were hoping that it would get picked up. The producers would go to the next level in, in town because it was a 90 seat theater there. You know, we hope, but we had high aspirations, but that didn't materialize. But he said, you know, that review, you have that review for the rest of your life. And a nice quote from the New York Times is something you can still use. Talk about how you learned how to produce, because this is something that a lot of people don't know how to do. You weren't reading books on how to produce. All I wanted to do was perform. And I go, okay, there's the theater. I want to perform. How do I get in there? And they say, well, you need a producer. And what does a producer do? Producer puts up the money, rents the theater, hires the publicist, buys the ads, you know, sets, you know, makes things happen with the with the with the financial uh, commitment, with the hopes and the expectations that the ticket sales will, you know, outweigh the, the money they put up, and eventually they will make money. So if it costs them ten thousand dollars to get the thing off the ground. The game plan is that they'll make 20000 or 30000 or 50000 or whatever it is. But I didn't have one of those people. So I, the man at the Hasty Pudding Theater, they were going to put me in there. And he said, you know what? I feel awful, but I can't put you in here. You know, But I'll let you rent it. If you want to rent the theater for the summer of 1995, I'll do it. And he gave me a really reasonable rent. And uh, I did. And so, and but that was coming off in New York and coming off of working with Jack and coming off good reviews in the time. So I had confidence that the product was good. You know, I had confidence that the product was good. And I worked with a great director, Larry Eric, who um, I work, who Irvin Arthur, who's a cousin of Irvin Arthur's, who introduced me to him back in, uh, the, in the early 90s. And Larry and I really hit it off and uh, loved the guy. And, uh, and his wife, April, and we became really good friends. But anyway, Larry worked with the shows, and he took the shows, and he took the material and helped shape it and edit it and just would take notes on every show. Same with Jack Rollins. He would take notes, and he would go to interviews with me, put up his own money to help. You know, him and his wife, Jane, wonderful people, invited their family to come. You know, I mean, it was just like it, you couldn't have asked for a better people around around you you know trying to trying to do this and how big is the hasty pudding theater it's about 300 seats i think 300 seats yeah you rent it out yourself you bet on yourself you yeah. spend all the money advertising everything yeah hired a publicist and uh you know got on the radio learned how to place ads learned how to buy ads and how many days a week was the show run i was doing wednesday thursday friday saturday four nights four nights four shows or were there i think it was four nights four shows yeah i think we did four shows a week so was, how was much was the, the rent of the theater the, the rent of the theater at that time i think it was two thousand a week for four shows two thousand a week i think so and so you finish the summer do you start selling out Barry, what happened was the show went in. We did it like a real play. You know, you do th a week of previews. You get it where you want. You work with a director. You pay these people. You, you know, it's a, a real theater so show. So before you open, how much money had you gone out of pocket? I don't know. Maybe probably around 10000 10000 Five to 10000 What I'm happens? Thinking. The review, well, at the time, there's no web, there's no internet, there's three papers in town. All the papers cover the shows, or three or four papers. It's the old days where you get, a, if you get a preview, a really positive preview about the show that's coming in, and then you get really positive reviews, your shows will sell out. That's how theater was. And um, so that's what happened. I got really nice write-ups leading into the show. I hadn't been in Boston in five or six years, just coming back with a, a new show, 
People came out of the woodwork. They wanted to see it. It brought in a completely different clientele of people. It brought in the Harvard people. It brought in the, you know, I mean, I grew up in Cambridge. No one in my family knew where Hasty Pudding Theater was. <laughs> no one in the neighborhood ever went up there. We weren't real, you know, we weren't into plays so much. You know, we were into Red Sox and Celtics and things like that. But And you're you charging know, how much a ticket? It was like 20 bucks, $25 or something. But $7,500 a show is coming in, $30,000 a week is coming in you're not as two thousand dollars a week plus you got to pay your director a percentage you got to pay some sound yeah, yeah. people lighting people or whatever but you're probably clearing twenty thousand a week that's right you're very good at math barry i'm a jew <laughs> so you're 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 going into the situation where the clubs, because you were a political guy, it wasn't working out the way you wanted to. You it was come, just frustrating. You they come back to Boston, yeah. you really, it could be argued, you had your run, it wasn't going well, you didn't really have that much money, and you spent basically your last amounts of money to put up this show, and if it didn't go well, you were in deep shit, but it did, 20000 a week for 13 weeks of the summer, and you got- Barry, you sound like I made more than I did. <laughs> But, but you no, probably made between a hundred and three hundred thousand dollars during that first part of it. I made more doing that show than I made in two, three years of doing stand up. Because you bet it, on yourself and you put yourself just a out different, there and a different, you wrote your own stuff and you yeah. put it together and you financed it and you didn't have to answer to anybody. That's right. So it goes the summer and then what happens? Um well, we just we we ran it really well, but again, not having the experience of being a real producer with all sorts of bring it here, bring it there, you know, it never went to the level that it could have went to, uh, probably should have went to. It would have been nice to come back to New York and do it, but that's a million dollar investment. So I was just very happy with what we did, and then I took it out to I brought it out to. Um, Went to Chicago, I think, next. We did a run in Chicago. We did it, and then we came out here to the Coast Playhouse in L.A. and ran out here in 98. Uh, that was that was pretty funny because I thought, I'll just repeat this model in L.A. You know, surely people will come out in L.A., right? <laughs> and so I'm renting the Coast Playhouse, and it was the, the winter of El Nino. It was January of 98, and El Nino is hitting, and the weatherman, and it's raining for the first time in, I don't know, a decade in Los Angeles. No one's leaving the house. The weather people are coming on and saying, whatever you do, don't leave the house. And if you do leave the house, don't go to Tingle's show. It's at the Coast Playhouse. And it's, it's good, but don't go. Yeah. But, but great reviews. Again, artistically, very well received. Very hard to get people out. You know, not being well known. Not people weren't coming out, so I ran for like five months. I said, I know my audience is out there. I know they're coming, but they never came. We we never got more than I don't think thirty people in a show the whole time I was there. But I kept, and we're doing like five shows a week, and that was also two thousand a week. So those, so so the money was going out the other end now because not every time you produce works, as you know, right? That's right. So, so but, but you learned how to be a producer now. But you know what I learned, Barry? I learned that you got to bet on yourself. At least, if no one's gonna do it, you do it yourself, and at least you know. And it was, and I was, I almost wanted to quit after that. To tell you the truth, I almost wanted to quit after that. You wanted to quit because you lost so much money. We lost and money, and I was moved out here, and you know, was doing it, and my wife and I, and she was great, and she was just so supportive. My wife Catherine, and my son was one, and we were living not far from the Coast Playhouse, but it was, 
it was a great experience, good reviews, and uh, you know, couldn't have been couldn't have been worked out better artistically. But uh, you know, and then we sent, and then I read an article in the paper about uh, with um, in USA Today. I was flying back to Boston to do a one nighter to get some dough, and I read an article in the USA Today that sixty minutes was doing another show, a spinoff, sixty minutes too, and they had everybody. They had all their people, but the only person they didn't have was the Andy Rooney guy. So they had Mike Wallace, they had Charlie Rose, they had, uh, you know, Morley Safer, they had uh, uh, Bob Simon, uh, Scott Pelley, and the only person, Carol Marin, and uh, and anyway, they didn't have the Andy Rooney guy, and we eventually sent them a tape, and they loved the tape, and uh, I got the gig. You know, but I got the gig because I saw the article in the paper and asked them to send them the tape, and they send them the tape. And you remember that, brother? Yes, I do. <laughs> I remember you stayed at my apartment when yep. you were doing the auditions. Yeah. Talk about the audition process, the meetings, and the competition, and how you were able to get that gig, knowing that probably somebody who had a lot more experience should have gotten the gig, but yeah. you got it. What did you do to get it? I all I did was show them clips of material commentaries that I had been doing in Boston when I was living there for New England Cable News. I had done, you know, three or four of these things and, uh, or maybe more, maybe t I was doing them almost every week actually, but I kept pitching myself to shows, you know, I want to do commentaries like Andy Rooney Radio. I was out here pitching the idea to the networks and I was pitching it and they were all scratching their head. How could we do that? How could we do that? You know, coming out of the news, doing it. But anyway, it never worked out. But this show was, it was made for that. And so but what's fascinating is your early bits, like the inability to park. Parking tickets, right. Gun control. Yeah. These bits that were in your stand-up that you honed and you worked hard at. Yeah. You were able to figure out a way to integrate them into these 60-minute pieces. Right. Well, it was just basically doing it to camera. And you had memorized it. I already memorized it. So you're doing it to camera. And uh, and there's no audience, obviously. But the audience, obviously, is millions. But they're not. it's not a live audience. So you're just doing the act to the But this is your camera. first time going into a situation where you're working on network television. You are a series regular on one of the most prestigious shows in the world and there are people there that are very very established very important very powerful if there's seven people on the show you're number seven you are the least important person on the show dealing with these behemoths tell our audience what it was like to get feedback and have people directing you and telling you what you were doing right, what you were doing wrong, what needed to happen. Did yeah. Dan Rather ever come up to you and say, hey, Jimmy, great job, or did he say, hey, this bit here, I think you should have done it this way? No, people were unbelievably supportive, and the, the guy who made the whole thing happen was Jeff Fager. He was the executive producer of 60 Minutes 2. I was an unknown. He had his choice of anybody in the country all kinds of people auditioned for that. As a matter of fact, I heard through the grapevine there was a big agency out here that called a meeting when I got the job. Called a meeting and said, how did this guy get that job? <laughs> I was right there with Jimmy at the time. I wasn't the guy involved. I wasn't involved in anything having to do with just being more supportive and helping Jimmy 
you were in town and you were a real supporter, Barry, and you were saying, go into the interview, get a suit, get here early, get your hair cut. I was just telling Jimmy, like I tell anybody else, let's say you're an actor and you're doing audition. You have to pretend that Tom Hanks, Leonardo DiCaprio, Thomas Hardy all went in before you. And what are you going to do that's going to knock those guys off? That's always my philosophy. you got to go in there and exceed the expectations of the people. Do things a little differently that you're uncomfortable with if you have to. And be a leading man. And go in and show them that you're styled and groomed and ready and refined. Because these are the greatest journalists in the world. I can guarantee you there were a ton of people that were much more experienced than you going oh, in. Oh, yeah. But you know what he loved about it, Barry? It was original. The reason Jeff Vega took me over all those other people, it was a fresh face and it was original. And there was an authenticity, according to him, that in a, a unique, a different angle on things. And But it was very difficult to do it on camera have, and to be edited. And why the agency took the meeting saying, how did this guy get the show? Is because Jimmy Tingle, again, did something that was incredible that he did then that people are doing now and it's common he made himself a tape he submitted the tape and he essentially did it although he did have a management company that was sort of quasi behind him in certain ways that might have taken what he did and maybe put a submission together with a bunch of other people the bottom line is jimmy got the gig on his own the reason the agency called the meeting is they have agents that get paid millions of dollars to help set their clients up to get these gigs. Mm. And this guy got the gig without any agency representation. Well, not, not, not exactly. It was my idea. It was my idea to send the tape. It was, I had made the tape, but it was actually Ray Rio. Ray Rio at Brillstein. I said, Ray, please send these guys to tape. But in all due yeah. respect to Ray Rio, yeah. you heard the ad you found out that they were doing the submissions you saw it in usa today you made the tape and you called ray rio and said will you do me a favor and submit this for me yeah yeah so he was a facilitator in what you already did and put together and you had no agency well, he I, was a manager. No, no, yeah, he was a manager. Yeah, Brillstein and Green. And that's yeah. why the big agency called the meeting. So you get the gig, you feel like things are going well. What's the first sign that maybe, you know, you're hearing rumblings, maybe this isn't going to last <laughs> The too first long. season went great. Well, what happens, first of all, when you audition and you give them 10 bits that you already know and are already memorized that you've been doing and you can transfer those right away to TV, that's great. Now you got to come up with 10 other bits for the next 10 weeks that are of the same level and caliber, which is hard as a as a comic because comics i mean the bits are honed the parking meter bits honed from years of doing it you know so that was challenging focusing writing again not having the background as a, a of a real writer not having the background of a real per, a personal rights for tv or rights on deadline for newspapers being a comic where you work things out orally on stage and you say it over and over till you get it right at least that was my process it's a longer process and these things have to be for the next week and so there was a challenge on on that on, on turning you know coming up with the material and not only coming up with material but material that's accessible or 
appropriate for the show because not everything I wrote, I wrote tons of stuff, but I always had something in the ready to go, but it wasn't always put on the air because it was just either it was, um, you know, it just, sometimes it was advocacy. You know, as a comic, there's nobody telling you what to do on stage. So you have complete freedom. Like that's why Colbert and John Stewart were so effective on Comedy Central. The parameters, the boundaries are like way out here. S 60 minutes network television, that two minute slot, that's a much tighter window that you gotta work within a smaller window. And it can't be, you can't be irreverent. You can't make things up, of course. But in, in comedy, from the field we're from, in satire, it's tongue in cheek, it's a different thing. So it was harder to fit into that journalism uh, slot. But you got through the first season, obviously yeah. they picked up your option, they liked what you were doing. When did things start going a little south? What happened is just you'd, I'd write stuff and it wouldn't get on the air, you know? And I'd come up with stuff and it wouldn't get on the air. Um, so they just didn't air a segment with you? Yeah. It would just, you know, they go, you know what? We'd, we'd write it, we'd submit it, it would get approved, we'd go film it. You know, and it's very cumbersome, as you know, television. It's And at the time, it was the lighting got to be perfect and everything's got to be perfect and it's got to really work. And... Um, that the, the bits, I wasn't coming up with the bits for them, you know? And I don't blame them. I just say, you know what? I wasn't delivering what they needed delivered in that time slot, in that time frame, in that two-minute So you period. start the second season. Do you remember what uh, number episode of the second season was the first time you didn't get on? And then how often did that happen? Um... I don't remember off the top of my head, but it would be, it would always be a challenge to get on. Sometimes it would just, you, you, you're writing material and you got to get it approved. And, and sometimes I would take stuff and I'd say, How, what do you think of this idea? And the idea wasn't completely worked out yet. So it's not even a strong idea yet. And you got a week to do it. And so, you know, so I was always dipping into my reservoir of material that I had trying to adapt it for television and also what was in the news and what was going on a lot of times the things in the news and what was going on my political sensibilities would emerge and my political sensibilities weren't they were very partisan they were an, a certain you know a certain mindset and uh, th they're not an advocacy show they're not there trying to you know their job is not to talk about gun control or, or whatever you know campaign finance reform I wasn't delivering consistently what they needed and so take us through the call so the call is the call is uh we're beginning season three it's the summer and i call down and uh and so you're there on no 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 i'm up in boston i'm and you know the producer says you got to come down we got to talk and you know i walk in the office and you know, Jeff was, was great. Jeff Fager, the man who hired me, he said, uh, Jimmy, you've done a, a great job here, but, you know, we're going in another direction, you know, and you've had a great run. And I'm, like, trying to talk him out of it. I go, well, you know, I really think I can do it. He goes, nah, you know, it's we've been through this. It's been tough. You know, you can't get the stuff on the air. It's not always right. You know, it's very difficult. And uh, he says, you know, and I said, well, I just want to thank you, man, from the bottom of my heart for the opportunity. You know, it was a great opportunity. I love doing it. And I can't thank you enough for the opportunity. And he was, you know, he was very happy with that and very moved by it. And I was moved working there. And on a certain level, it's a relief. Because if you're not in a, a job that's, you're feeling like you're, you're contributing. And if it's a hassle and it's, 
you know, it's a kind of a square peg in a round hole on a certain level. It's 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 not a good fit. You know, it's not a good fit for you. It's not a good for, fit for them. And they need someone who can close the show with what, you know, to address an entire national audience. The other thing was the accent didn't help. Probably, it's kind of off-putting, I think. Uh, that didn't really help. So they either. give you the call to come into the office. You come from Boston all the way to New York to get fired. <laughs> and then you walk out of the offices and are you feeling like you want to quit again? I'm feeling like, you know, yeah, I'm feeling, I don't know about if I want to quit, but I just didn't feel like, it's a little soul searching, you know. I didn't feel like, uh, I didn't feel great. But on a certain level, you're kind of relieved that, okay, well, didn't work out. Uh, and on another level, you're feeling like, you know what, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. I just want to go back to doing, working on my own terms because the great thing about comedy and the great thing, the why podcasts work so well and because people can work the way they want to work and they can work uninhibited and unedited and that doesn't mean everything's great, but that was a very highly edited and justifiably so they have to it's top-notch journalism and they have to edit it and they have to be it has to be a certain product to fit into that to that show and it's their show it's not my show it's their show so if if they if they're working with people who can't fit into that slot that it's not working for them and that's fine and that's the way it was and i thought what was amazing about you is that you then went back to boston instead of just giving up and saying fuck it you took that to heart. You remembered what happened at the Hasty Theater, how you created your own opportunities. You rented the theater. It worked well. And then I think the last thing I want to talk about before we ride off in the sunset is the fact you went into Boston and you found a theater that you could create your own environment. That's in. right. <laughs> where you could bring in the greatest performers in the country and also do your own shows. And... It was unbelievably successful. Could you talk about how you made that happen as sure. a producer? I wanted to. I wanted to get back just to doing stand up and doing my own shows, and wanted a space to work in. And I saw this theater that was available it was empty. It held 150 people, and I asked them about maybe leasing it, and we were able to lease it. And so I signed a lease, and I leased it for a year at a time for five years, and named it Jimmy Tingle's Off Broadway Theater. And uh, we had some wonderful shows there. We, in 2004, we did the unconventional comedy convention. We brought political humorists from all over the country down there. We have Mortsall and Lewis Black and Janine Garofalo and Barry Cremins and Will Durst and A. Whitney Brown and uh, just a bunch of people that came through there. And over the years, we had you know serious writers and thinkers and authors. Howard Zinn was there. We did a film out of there about making the theater. We had music and plays and all sorts of stuff. And Bobby Goldthwaite was there. And we just you know, it was it was a great thing. Uh, and it was you could do your own thing. And you know, it was you rent it and put in the money and you you try to make it work. And you inspired other people to do the same yeah, thing with the theater. Yeah, 
yeah and it was uh it was great it, it was very taxing and after five years i didn't want to do it anymore i didn't want to do it anymore and so the lease was up and i said you know what it's been great but we won some awards helped the neighborhood brought a lot of people into this into that neighborhood helped the pubs the restaurants for every one dollar of this is a truth economic fact for every one dollar spent on a theater ticket or an entertainment ticket in a neighborhood three dollars is spent in the surrounding neighborhoods on restaurants pubs parking and after five years i said all i want is my three dollars back (laughs) (laughs) but that was great and then i got out of there and just said i'm gonna i want to go back to school and that's how i ended up at the kennedy school people kept saying to me because i did a lot of philanthropic work there did a lot of benefits and fundraisers and a lot of people said you know you should check out the kennedy school of government at harvard they're always looking for people who are doing something a little different who are you know doing things with a social conscious or political activism or you know doing something that's uh, of some sort of public service and I never considered what I was doing public service but other people did and I had a friend that went there and he said you know I'll help you with your application and we filled out the application his name is Stevie Carabino his actual father was Mr. Carabino was my seventh grade English teacher but uh, he had gone there as a some of a police officer. He went there and he um, loved it. And I met a lot of people. Uh, Marjorie Decker was a city council person in Cambridge. She went there. She loved it. Tommy O'Neill, Tip's son, went there back in the 80s. He loved it. So I just knew a lot of people that went there. They said, you should check it out because it's a really inspiring place. And the people from all over the world are there. And they're all going into public service. And they're trying to do something, uh, you know, in whatever field they're in. A lot, in a, they have a mid career program for people who've been in the workforce for 15 plus years and I had certainly achieved that I had been doing it comedy at that time I guess 25 years but whatever so I applied and I got in and I loved it and got a master's degree and then they had the the they had the competition they every year they have a, a commencement address at the and the at graduation they have a Harvard commencement address and and they have a competition. And one of the classes I was taking was they made us watch Steve Jobs' uh, commencement address from Stanford when he did it. And uh, it was wonderful, wonderful commencement address, inspiring. It was just beautiful. And and after the class, I said, do they ever do that at Harvard? He goes, oh, yeah. And they said, as a matter of fact, they have a competition. You should enter it. You know, you should enter the competition for the commencement address. I said, Really? said yeah so I started the ball rolling on that and you it's like doing a set for the tonight show or something you you know you submit a written draft and then they they you know 40 or 50 people submit it from the graduate schools at Harvard and you submit the draft and then they go through it and then they pick 20 then they whittle it down to 10 then you go in and read it then you got to come in and you go off book and you do three or four times and we're down to three people and I got a call saying Congratulations, you've been chosen as the 2010 commencement speaker at Harvard. Incredible. I got to tell you, Barry, I I practiced that set, and I call it a set. I practiced it just like I practiced comedy. I I went to the folk clubs. I went to open mic nights. I went to... You know, I did it in front of all kinds of different people. I'd perform it. I'd just try to memorize it. One of the last nights, two nights before the actual commencement address at Harvard, I'm in the Cantab Lounge in Central Square, okay? <laughs> they have a they have an open mic blues night, right? It's like 1.30 in the morning. I'm the last act on. There's like eight people. Well, there's like 15 people there. Eight 
of inebriated. The band just got <laughs> off, and I go, and I would set up, I would set up the practice of this speech the same way every time. I'd say, listen, okay, I'm giving the commencement address at Harvard next week, and so pretend now that we're all graduating from Harvard, and it's Thursday morning, May 19th. We're all graduating from Harvard, and of course there's rumblings, guys at the bar, Harvard sucks! <laughs> you know, and people are, anyway, and so, it's very nice to be here tonight, so I would rehearse it and practice it, and that's how I kind of got it, because you get up there and you're in front of 35,000 people. Judge Souter is on the, from the Supreme Court is to my left. <laughs> Meryl Streep is to my right. She's getting a, she's getting an honorary degree. There's all these Nobel Prize winners up there, and I'm talking about stealing bikes as a kid, Harvard <laughs> <laughs> Yards. But they loved it, and I loved it, and it was unbelievably rewarding. And it was one of the best things I've ever done, Barry. Because what I'm trying to do now is use entertainment for purposes beyond just entertainment. And the whole time I was there at Harvard, I was thinking of maybe going to politics, maybe going to this, maybe go to that. But I realized the cultural significance of entertainment is huge. I can't tell you how many classes I would be in and John Stewart's name would come up or Stephen Colbert's name would come up or Conan O'Brien or Al Franken or, you know, people who in the entertainment world who, who were doing something more than entertainment, just purely entertainment, uh, Leno uh, or Bill Maher, you know, they would always come up in the classes and uh, the significance and, the, and the, the impact that they were having in the culture. And I realized the art of stand-up comedy is really, really special. And I'd like to try to figure out a way to use it for purposes beyond just entertainment. And that's how I came up with the idea of humor for humanity. More than entertainment, raising spirits, funds, and awareness for nonprofits, charities, and social causes. Our mission is your mission. Humor for humanity. Humor in helping. Humor in healing humor and hope ha 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 fantastic good night everybody <laughs> let's take a listen to the harvard university commencement address where jimmy tingle came full circle from bicycle stealing to blowing meryl streep away graduate english address the town the gown and asking for help Candidate for the degree of Master in Public Administration, James Tingle. Thank you. I am truly honored to be here this morning. My name is Jimmy Tingle, and that is my real name. And I was born and raised right here in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I am an unlikely choice to give a commencement address at Harvard because, quite frankly, my friends, I am not a scholar, which will become increasingly more evident as I proceed. I'm a comedian by profession, and I started performing here in the Boston area in the early 1980s, actually did street performing right out here in Harvard Square. I've traveled all over the world performing stand-up comedy. I don't want to brag, but two years ago, I performed in Europe. <laughs> and I'd just like to say, excellent country. <laughs> Yeah. 
You know what's nice about being here this morning? You actually get that joke. <laughs> actually, I am from a long line of intellectuals. Growing up here in Cambridge, we lived right near a college. <laughs> My father owned and drove taxi cabs here in Harvard Square. He would pick up Harvard professors. They would tell him things. <laughs> he would come home and tell us. <laughs> For generations, Harvard has given scholarships to students from Cambridge and students from all over the world who could meet the academic requirements. Starting in the third grade, my dear sweet mother who was here this morning would say to me, Jimmy, if you study really hard, someday you could go to Harvard. <laughs> By the sixth grade, she stopped telling me that. <laughs> By the eighth grade, our whole neighborhood had their eyes set on Harvard. Not so much for scholarships, but because it was an excellent place to steal bicycles. <laughs> I can remember running through this very yard some 40 years ago, being chased by Harvard students, the Harvard faculty, and the Harvard Police Department. <laughs> Other college campuses during the 1960s were bitterly divided between the students and the administration over civil rights and the war in Vietnam. But here at Harvard, my friends and I were able to unite students, faculty, and law enforcement. <laughs> It was in this very yard that I had my first spiritual awakening. As I was running, I started to pray, please God, please God, don't let me get caught. I'll never do it again. My mother will kill me. She always wanted me to go to Harvard. This isn't what she meant. And then I realized I was an altar boy. I was a Catholic. I should have been praying before I tried to take the bicycle. And I just want to say to the alumni gathered here this morning, on behalf of myself and all the other misguided youth of Cambridge and greater Boston, who may have unjustifiably taken your bicycles, <laughs> we're sorry. <laughs> and to the graduates, Many of you will go on to positions of great power and influence in business and politics and government. And the temptations to cut corners, to lie, to steal, to cheat will be formidable. <laughs> My advice to you today is simply this. Ask for guidance before you commit the crime. <laughs> Trust me, it is much less embarrassing to ask for help privately than to beg for forgiveness at graduation. And I am so grateful, I am so grateful that the petty crimes of my youth were not successful. For had my dishonest behavior been rewarded, I may not be with you here today. My life may have taken a different turn and I could have ended up on Wall Street. <laughs>
wanted to go to this school, but always felt it was too late. Yet encouraged by family and friends and colleagues and my mom and my wife, Catherine, I put in an application anyway. And like all of you, was absolutely overjoyed when that letter of acceptance came in the mail. I couldn't believe it. I said to my wife, I can't believe this. After all these years, I've actually been accepted to Harvard. <laughs> they must really need a commencement speaker. <laughs> And this entire year, people have asked me, Jimmy, why would a comedian want to go to Harvard? The same reason all of you wanted to go to Harvard. We got in. <laughs> and all of us have faced challenges getting here today, and still more academic challenges once classes started. My biggest academic challenge was the quantitative mathematics requirement for graduation. Unfortunately, I had to take statistics. <laughs> Fortunately, we had a wonderful and dedicated and great teacher, Deborah Hughes Hallett, <laughs> who was kind enough to arrange extra help sessions for students who were struggling with the material. I went to every single extra help session she offered. And it was always a very familiar scenario. Me and 19 students from other countries. <laughs> countries often in conflict with one another. India and Pakistan, Turkey and Greece, Israelis and Palestinians, all of us helping one another, all of us learning from one another, all of us supporting one another across racial, ethnic, and religious lines. And I say this as a native Bostonian, all of us with English as a second language. <laughs> are here today because somebody helped us. Whether it was family or friends or colleagues or teachers or administrations or scholarships or God or a higher power, someone or something helped us get here today. And now it's our job to help others. And that is education. And that is human progress in its simplest form. And I believe very, very strongly, I believe very, very strongly that with the right amount of physical, spiritual, and intellectual help, almost anything in this world is possible. All of the students in those extra help sessions passed those courses. Some of those students actually got an A in statistics. I personally got a B. <laughs> Which for me was a miracle. <laughs> actually, in the spirit of honesty, a B minus. which was a minor miracle. <laughs> but if I could get the help that I needed to get a B minus in statistics, in quantitative mathematics, at graduate school, at Harvard, there is hope for world peace. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. All right, six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention a name of somebody. You just say what comes to mind, anything, okay? Johnny Carson. Giving me the big okay. Awesome. Chris Rock. Funny dude. When I worked on this film, 
head of state about a month after it opened. I got a package in the mail. I opened it up. It was from Rolex. I opened it up. It was a big honking Rolex watch with a card. I said to my wife, Kathy, Kathy, look what Chris sent me. She goes, oh, my God. She goes, he inscribed something on the back. I said, what's it say? Thanks for your help, motherfucker. <laughs> Chris Rock. That's one thing about Chris Rock that everybody out there, you should listen to this. Every table read Chris Rock does, if he invites you to a table read, there's a gift waiting for you, whether it be an iPad or an electronic gift or something great. He always takes care of people well and beyond any other artist I've ever seen in my life. Dan Rather. Great guy. I love Dan. He was uh, a real pro, really helped a lot at 60 Minutes. Um, you know, very, very uh, supportive. And, uh, you know, he said once to me, he said, you know, because one thing, sometimes there was an overreach trying to make maybe bigger points that are too big for uh, one commentator to make, you know, playing over your head. He said, try to just play within your play within yourself you know like a great a great athlete they they know their role and they kind of they do that and they don't try to do more than that they don't try to be the qu quarterback and the you know defensive back they you know and so he was i really liked Dan. larry king uh larry king i was on his show loved being with larry i did a piece back in the day was oh, i did that what was it called larry king weekend a lot of fun down in dc great guy and he was very complimentary i couldn't believe it he was so nice colin quinn colin colin quinn jimmy it could be. <laughs> what are you going to say the guy uh, reached out put out his hand um you know great guy love the guy uh changed my life with one conversation louis ck louis ck to see a guy Come into the, come into the Catch a Rising Star, when he was still in high school, I believe, and he started doing. Uh, he was the first guy I saw start doing videos, and he was just a young kid, and he was doing these really clever original videos, and nobody was doing that at the time, and he was. I don't even know if he was out of high school at the time, but uh, I remember when he first went to New York and had the pleasure of. Uh, Introducing him down there at the Comedy Cellar, I think, to Bill Grunfest. I think Grunfest or Grunfeld? Grunfest. Grunfest, yeah. Uh, I don't know if I was the first one to introduce him, but I do remember introducing him down there. Uh, great guy and wish him the best and all his success. Larry David. Larry David. <laughs> wow. I remember him playing a Catch a Rising Star, going out with him after the show he played in Cambridge and he was saying and I was he, he was at the point in his comedy career where it didn't always work with the audience and uh, <laughs> and I can remember and he would be the first to admit it but I can remember laughing you know he was always a comics comic laughing at everything going out after him and he was saying we're going go to the Tasty the little Tasty Diner in Harvard Square and he was saying he's going out to uh, L.A. And uh, trying to write a show with Jerry. And, you know, didn't want to, you know, was breaking away from stand-up. and wanted to write this show with Jerry, a sitcom. Guess that worked out okay. Yeah. 
Bill Burr. Man, I watched his, I listened to him the other day with uh, Joe Rogan on his podcast, and it was great. And I don't know Bill that well, but we're sort of cut from the same cloth in the Boston area. I'm not even that much familiar with his material or his shows. I just know he sold out 19 shows at the Wilbur Theater in Boston. <laughs> 19 shows, and you're doing New Year's Eve there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, But I've had many people say to me, he's among the best out there. Many people say that. and uh, That's what they used to say about you, and they still do. Yeah, well, I don't know, but... You know, Al Franken. Brother Al. He's in the movie, The American Dream. Uh, you know, people say you might go into politics, you know, do pull an Al Franken and go into politics, leave comedy, go into politics. I've thought about it, uh, but I'm not done in comedy yet. John Stewart. John Stewart. I don't think anybody's done it better than Stewart and Colbert on that that show uh, you know he had the poetic license to do what he wanted to do and the instinct and the intelligence and the sense of humor to to make it happen and uh just a great a great contribution to the cultural conversation conan o'brien brother conan he's got one of the best commencement speeches ever at harvard and i've done his show twice and it couldn't have been nicer and the first time i did it was fantastic but I got bumped because he had Ted Williams on and Ted Williams his segment his segment went too long and he uh and Conan comes into the room and goes, listen, I'm so sorry. My, you know, I really want to put you on tonight. But Ted Williams, we're going to do another segment with him. Is that all right? And of course. You know, he goes, that's just the way it happened. I goes, Ted Williams, you know, come on, will you? you got to, it's like having Abe Lincoln. <laughs> <laughs> Let him do another segment. Awesome. Lastly, Andy Rooney. Andy. No Andy Rooney, no tingle. That's all I can say. He was great. Um, I pitched, you know, when I was at the show, he was just so kind. And uh, when I left the show, he wrote me this nicest letter. And it was a, you know, he typed it up in his typewriter. It's where he worked for years. He worked on the same typewriter. Wrote a really nice letter congratulating me, saying you wrote some great stuff. And I wish I, a lot of them I, were so good, I wish I wrote them. And uh, he was just very, very, very kind and very supportive. And so is his daughter, Emily. <laughs> awesome. Your proudest moment in show business. This is it, Barry. <laughs> Doing the Barry Katz industry standard. <laughs> well, then we're in deep shit. Yeah. Oh, I don't know, Bear. That's a that's a tough one. I, I gotta say, going on with Johnny was pretty pretty amazing. Going on with Johnny and, and, and that the set still has staying power all these years later is uh it was really nice your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to come back even stronger biggest disappointment probably at 60 minutes i should have moved to new york and should have just focused on that and just you know just just not you know i continued to live in boston i continued to kind of work clubs and do gigs and i should have just focused and just uh listened well, nobody was saying not to do that stuff, but just probably focused more. And also just coming up, maybe taking more advice from people. I had great managers that, you know, would say, you know, study acting, try this, try that. But my heart was never in it. My heart was always in stand-up. It was always in the comedy. It was always in the performance. It was always in the commentary. 
And that's what I was always into. So, uh, you know, I think I don't have any regrets, really. But I know that that 60 Minutes thing could have been different had I just focused and not got so distracted with, with other things. All right, last question. What advice do you have for the young person who's starting off in the business and how to get through and change the patterns in their life, not only professionally, but personally, and rise above all the defeats and all the things of that nature and get to the kind of level that you've gotten to in your career? You got to do it because you love it, you know, and you, you love it and there's something inside you bringing you back out there and wanting to write, wanting to create, wanting to connect with people. And um, and I tell you, Barry, well, the reason I talked about quitting drinking and, and, and you know, asking for help and, and the spiritual component, that's been a, the biggest, the biggest um, asset that I've had that all these years and to this day is the biggest asset, that spiritual help, guidance, direction in all, everything not just alcohol or substance abuse but every aspect of your life and really trying to um, tap into that no matter what the dilemma is no matter whether it's professional you know dilemmas or relationships or parenting or whatever it is you know bringing bringing the big guy in with you is like a huge asset and uh, I would say if people you know whatever that's that's just I found it very helpful and very effective. And uh, so whatever else happens, you, you got something besides you helping you. Awesome. Jimmy Tingle, huge man. Fantastic. <laughs> I just want to go out and steal a bicycle right now. And hope <laughs> I'm my... not proud, Barry. <laughs> no, it's fantastic. Thank you so much. Thanks a million for having me, Barry. It's great to see you, man. You look great. And I'm so happy for you and all your success. It really is great. The guy who did Popeye jokes at the Comedy Connection, Popeye having an orgasm to be a mogul. You're a mogul. And it's awesome to be here in L.A. with you. And uh, thanks for all your help over the years, man. You're a great friend and a great powerful example on perseverance and commitment and dedication and helping other people man so thank you thank you pal and good luck at your show new year's eve at the wilbur theater anybody within a 200 mile radius should check that out it's an amazing show and it's sure to sell out it probably already is who knows but i'm sure there's some tickets available go get them if you can and as always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. They say it's the glory. I'll scream your name. Put you on shoulders. Walk you to fame. You get all the money, drive that fancy car. All the people love you, cause you're going for life is for the dreamers. They have all to gain, it's never quite over, so it all feels the same. Pick your own poison, dig your own grave down in the valley. A fortune.
Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.